Hello there. Welcome to this podcast from Cambridge Health Tech Institute for the Cancer Diagnosis at the Crossroads Precision Medicine Driving Change event running September 15th through the 17th in Seattle, Washington. I'm Ann Wynn, Associate Conference Producer. Joining us today is one of our speakers from the session, Genomics Role in Individualized Cancer Therapy from Assay Development to Clinical Implementation, Dr. Colin Pritchard, Assistant Professor and Associate Director of the Genetics and Solid Tumors Laboratory in Laboratory Medicine at the University of Washington. Colin, thank you for spending some time with us now. It's my pleasure. Can you share a little bit about your clinical focus on applications of next-generation sequencing gene panels for cancer risk assessment and precision treatment? Why that focus? Why at the University of Washington? And what progress have you made? We've been offering next-generation sequencing-based panels for both cancer risk assessment, like you said, and for precision treatment. By that, mean we, we mean we're actually testing the tumor tissue. Um, and the reason for the focus is several fold. We have quite a bit of expertise in cancer biology at the University of Washington and in the larger University of Washington system. It's been my own personal area of interest for many years. But I've always dreamed of getting into this area, even since back in the late 90s, early 2000s. I got inspired in medical school by some of the technologies that were coming along to do broader profiling of tumors to try to identify unique features that would help personalize treatment. In graduate school, I continued to work on those aspects through a message RNA profiling type of molecule that was done through the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center through a mentorship of Pete Nelson, and through my clinical training at University of Washington and continue to work on that in my uh, clinical pathology training. And so really around 2008 was a time when some of these mutation-based biomarkers, that is mutations in tumors that predict responsive therapy, became part of a standard clinical practice. And at that time, there were just a couple and there was sort of one or two. And since 2008, it's just really skyrocketed in terms of the number of mutations that are clinically useful to know about. And so that's kind of the background of kind of why now. been my personal interest, but certainly there's lots of expertise in the institution that I've benefited from and from my colleagues. And so in 2010, I'll just switch gears and talk a little bit about cancer risk to start with. So with cancer risk, what we're talking about is measuring mutations that are inherited throughout the body, and you can take a blood sample and look at the patient's DNA in the blood cells as a surrogate for the DNA throughout the body and see if they may have inherited a mutation that may predispose them to cancer. So that's very different than the tumor-based testing. So I'm just going to focus on the blood-based cancer risk testing for now. So for that, there was this very exciting paper that was led by Dr. Tom Walsh through Dr. Mary Claire King's lab talking about a brand new approach to cancer risk assessment. So Dr. King was the person who first identified the BRCA1 locus, very famous for that gene that's very important for breast and ovarian cancer risk. And Tom Walsh and her lab developed a next-generation sequencing panel approach to look for not just BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations that are associated with cancer predisposition, but dozens of more genes. And that original panel was of 20, 21 or 22 genes, I believe, and has since then expanded and now is up to over 50 genes. So I reached out to their group and said, hey, look, you know, we were already doing sort of one-at-a-time cancer testing and really interested in this area, and they were just thrilled to collaborate, and we continue to collaborate very closely. And so through that expertise locally at the University of Washington with Dr. King's group and Dr. Walsh, also Dr. Liz Swisher, who works closely with that group and knows quite a bit about ovarian cancer genetics, it's been a really successful collaboration and partnership in terms of bringing the technology that they initially pioneered in the research arena into clinical practice. So that's the sort of short story on the cancer risk assessment. So we offer 
two clinical panels focused on cancer risk. One of them is called BROCA, and that was the technology that was originally uh, pioneered by Dr. Walsh and Dr. King, and we continue to work together and, and offer that as a sort of what we call comprehensive cancer risk panel. So that panel is designed to be as broad as possible to, to include all the genes that we know may be associated with a high risk of cancer. So we're not interested in low-risk genes there. We're interested in genes when you have a mutation that you've inherited that it's a, a very high risk or high predisposition to cancer because those tend to be more actionable. By that, I mean if you as a patient know about that, you're more likely to have very clear guidelines about what you might do. So for example, a woman who has, for example, a BRCA1 mutation may decide that, you know what, my risk of breast cancer or ovarian cancer and or ovarian cancer is so high, I might actually decide to take measures like prophylactic surgery. That's certainly an individual decision and not necessarily something that every woman would choose to do, but it's something that would be, there's a high enough risk that it's certainly worth strongly considering. And there's lots of other genes like, out there like that now. So that's the background on cancer risk assessment. The precision treatment side, again, we've been working with kind of one-at-a-time biomarkers for many years. And like I said, going back to 2008, there were these first tumor-based biomarkers that we started doing one-at-a-time tests for, and we continue to do those one-at-a-time tests. But right around about two, three years ago, got to a tipping point where there were certain cancers, for example, lung cancer, where now there were three mutations, three different tests that were being ordered almost every time in certain contexts of advanced lung cancer. And there were other cancers, too, where there would be multiple of these individual tests that were indicated. So it started to make sense to think about a panel there as well, much like the cancer risk setting, where more and more genes were identified, in part through the research of Dr. King and Dr. Walsh and others. Just like that, where more and more genes were identified, so it started making sense to do a panel approach. Same thing on the precision treatment side. So in 2012, we launched what we call the UW Oncoplex test, which is a approximately 200-gene panel for um, precision treatment, and that's tumor-based testing. And that, again, YUW, well, we've got you know the expertise and the know-how, and why now? Because of that tipping point of it starting to make sense to do panel approach. Once there was more than two or three or four things we wanted to know about, it's actually more cost-effective to do a much broader profiling of the tumor. What are the most pressing challenges in translating genetic information into clinical settings and ensuring such data benefit individual patients? That is, what generally needs to be done to overcome them and who needs to be involved? One of the biggest challenges in translating genetic information, I think, is a matter of education. And I break down that education into at least two areas, education of patients and education of providers, and then potentially even a third area, education of payers, insurance companies. It's really a very rapidly moving field, more rapidly moving than any field that I'm aware of in recent memory in terms of what we're learning. And so what we knew even two years ago is very different than what we know now. And so one of the biggest challenges, I think, is everybody staying up to date. You know, so if you're a patient getting a report, got all this information on it, and let's say you're seeing an oncologist and they're just struggling to keep up with all this information too and they can't really necessarily counsel that well, then that doesn't necessarily help the patient that much. Even if there's really great data out there in terms of what that genetic information means for the patient, well, if the people who are counseling aren't up on that, don't know about it, then that's a problem. And so that's one of the really great things about the seminar and these types of events is that it can, I think, really facilitate that education piece and really spread the good word about all this cool information that we know about the genome that's out there. So that's one of the biggest challenges and why it's really critical to have as much interaction with 
local experts and regional experts and national experts in this area who can do the work of scouring the literature, learning about what the newest knowledge is from clinical trials, et cetera, and then can communicate with these various groups to try to help get the best information we can to our patients. So that's one of the challenges. There are other challenges just in terms of kind of logistics. So this is a challenging area for laboratory medicine, which is the field that I'm in in general, and then other diagnostics groups in that we're dealing with big data in a way that we've never dealt with before in the diagnostics community. So what I mean by big data, I mean, this is kind of a buzzword, but basically data sets that are 10, 100, 1,000, maybe even a million times bigger than the kind of data we've had to deal with before. So I'm very lucky to be um, at the University of Washington, especially in our department, Department of Lab Medicine, we actually have an entire informatics, medical informatics division with very strong computational support and servers and multiple, you know, MD and PhD level faculty who are experts in, in uh, medical informatics and bioinformatics who can support this data. But even with that existing infrastructure, it's quite a challenge because these data sets, just to give some sense of scale, one patient's data, the raw data may be terabytes. So that's the thousand gigabytes, just the actual raw data. <laughs> so you can imagine if you're trying to do hundreds of patients or thousands of patients testing, that adds up pretty quickly. And just thinking about how to store the data, how to analyze the data, how to process the data is actually quite a challenge. But it's something that we've been pretty lucky that we've been in a position where we had most of that infrastructure set up and the, the new infrastructure we needed, we had the expertise to be able to accommodate that. But in terms of Getting into this area, that's definitely a, a challenge, and it continues to be a challenge. I think we're buying a new server about every six months or so to try to keep up with the big data. So there's just that logistical piece. The other piece of that challenge is the interpretation. So I talked a little bit about communicating as one piece, but there's also the challenge of just interpreting for the experts, you know, because there's various levels of knowledge. What we've done and what many others have done who are in this field, I believe, is to try to tier the data in a sense. So what I mean by that is have um, certain genetic variants or mutations that are very, very well curated. We know exactly what to do with the information. We can make very, very clear recommendations to the provider and to the patient about a course of action based on that mutation or variant. And then sort of tiering below that, there may be some things where, yeah, there's some data in maybe early phase clinical trials or maybe in limited case studies, but there is data in people that this particular mutation or variant really is probably important for making treatment decisions. Or if it's on the cancer risk side, is probably important in terms of predicting cancer risk. And those would be lower down. And, and what do you say about that as a challenge? You don't want to overinterpret, but you don't want to suppress information either. So writing that balance is a challenge. And then, of course, there's everything else, things that maybe there's only preclinical data to support or no data to support what to do with it. And there's a something called a variant of uncertain significance that's a buzzword that's used. And what do you do when you're looking at lots and lots of things and you're going to have many things you don't know what they mean? And how do you ride that? How do you ride that balance of, of how much do you report to a patient and a provider versus you don't, especially for things where you don't 
know for sure what it means. So that's another big challenge. And I think, again, I think the field is really up to rising to that challenge. We and others have been actively researching how do you do optimal reporting from next-generation sequencing-based cancer panels. And it's an evolving area. The technology is what I like to call a disruptive innovation. It's, it's disrupting what we do in the laboratory medicine diagnostic side. It's affecting how clinicians are treating their patients. It's affecting patients themselves. But it's all technology-driven because we have this, this next-generation sequencing technology that can sequence about a million times more than we were ever able to do before. And so the effect of that is that in a cost-effective way, we can get much more data than we ever knew about. And the challenge is then on the interpretation side is sifting through this and trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. So like I said, we and others are very actively researching optimal approaches to that process of sifting the wheat from the chaff and what is the appropriate thing to put on a clinical report, what's not appropriate. And I think that, um, you know, if you've got people who are expert clinicians on the diagnostic side who are really making careful decisions about what goes on a report, I think this is being done quite well across the country even now, but it's certainly a challenge. Definitely. And finally, what will be the main theme of your talk at our event on precise cancer therapies on September 16th? I'm going to certainly talk about our own experience with both the cancer risk, cancer assessment panels, and with the precision treatment tumor sequencing panels. So I'll use those as a jumping off point to talk about some of these issues we've just discussed. So I'll talk about how the assays are developed and brought into clinical practice, talk about the big data and how that's stored, and then I'll talk about how that's interpreted, and also talk about reporting issues and how those, both what you put on a report and how do you communicate optimally with a provider and a patient to have the best chance of benefiting cancer patients and hopefully improving survival and outcome. Sounds fantastic. Well, Colin, thank you again for giving us a very rich glimpse of your research and experiences and observations. Yeah, well, thanks so much for the invite, and I look forward to the conference in September. That was Colin Pritchard of University of Washington. He'll be speaking during the Cancer Diagnosis at the Crossroads Precision Medicine Driving Change event taking place September 15th through the 17th in Seattle. If you'd like to hear him in person, go to www.healthtech.com slash precision hyphen medicine hyphen cancer for registration information and enter the key code podcast. I'm Ann Wynn. Thank you for listening.